It's a trick. It's a trick. What do you mean? I forgot about the man. What man? Fuck the man. We got 10 seconds. He said how many were going to St. Ives, right? The riddle begins as I was going to St. Ives. I met a man with seven wives. The guy and his wives aren't going anywhere. What are they doing? Sitting in the fucking road, waiting on the moon. How the hell should I know? Who's going to St. Ives then? The guy. Just the guy. Just one guy. The answer's one. Just one guy. How do you dial one? Five 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 zero 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 one. Zero zero one. Just one guy's going. Hello, John. Yeah, piece of cake. Give us something harder next time. But you're ten seconds late. No, no, the answer is one. There's a bomb in the trash can. Welcome to New York. Arriving now, I left something provocative on that train road. Simon says, get to the payphone next to the news kiosk in Wall Street Station by 10.20 or the number three train and its passengers vaporize. Use any means of travel other than civilian, I blow the train. Attempt to evacuate the subway, I blow the train. I call you in 30 minutes, be there. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. The sequel cast is a show where we talk about movies in a franchise, uh, one movie at a time. We're in the middle of looking at the Die Hard films, uh, this episode with uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, the third film in the series, uh, so far at least. Um, with me is Thrasher. Howdy, howdy, everybody. And we have a uh, returning guest to the sequel cast, uh, Eric Lichtenfeld. Uh, did I pronounce that right? You did. Oh, great. Uh, author of Action Speaks Louder violent spectacle in the American action movie. A fantastic book looking at um, different films in the action genre over time and how things change, and in some ways things remain the same. Uh, welcome back to the sequel cast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Do you have any uh, new books or anything you can talk about? <laughs> <laughs> um, a few things that are in the works but uh, not yet ready uh, to get into, but, uh, but thanks for asking Okay. Some film related, some not. No problem. That's always uh, will be exciting to hear about whatever uh, comes down the pipeline. So, um, you know, one the first time I ever saw Die Hard with a Vengeance, it was on video. And Thrasher, you saw this for the first time, just watching it for the show. Yep, Monday, Monday, uh, Monday. Okay, on Monday. And uh, I have to say, looking at Die Hard with a Vengeance compared to uh, the second film, uh, Die Hard Two, Die Harder. Uh, this one really has a lot of piss and vinegar to it. Like, it's exciting, it's energetic. 
What did you think, Eric, when you first saw Die Hard with a Vengeance? Well, I first saw it, um, actually before it was released, I saw it at a screening um, in New York City, um, a few weeks before it was released in, in May of 1995. And um, before I get into that, I do have to offer one small correction. The title of the sequel is not, contrary to uh, wide-held belief, it's not Die Hard 2, Die Harder. It's just Die Hard 2. Um, Die Hard 2, Die Harder is what appears on the teaser poster and on a lot of, and on all the home video packaging, yeah. which is why uh, there's that misperception out there. But if you go by what's on the screen and by what's in the credit block, uh, it is just Die Hard 2. Um, all that said, what did I think when I first saw Die Hard with a Vengeance? Um, I've always thought that it will, it's a really underappreciated movie. Uh, I think in, it's a really interesting complement to the first sequel in a lot of ways. Um, the first sequel, Die Hard 2, it has a fairly tight, if somewhat... Um, Convoluted? Well, it, it has a fairly tight story structure, even if that story is, is hard to swallow. Um, it's a little in, too incredible. But it <laughs> is pretty tight. Um, and it has a, a directorial style, and I think it, it is pretty... Substandard. Um, I think Ray Harlan's kind of walked all over um, Stephen D'Souza and Doug Richardson's screenplay. Die Hard with a Vengeance has kind of the opposite um, problems and, and virtues. The third movie um, has a script that's just a little bit all over the place. Um, in fact, I always thought of it as, as sort of two the halves of two different movies, the first half of one movie and the second half of another movie sort of soldered together in the middle. Um, and I always find that when I'm in the mood to see it, it's really one of the two halves I'm in the mood to see. It's not <laughs> like the first movie or where I'm in the mood to see the movie as a whole. But the directorial style, the cinematography, the editing, the production design, all of those things, the filmmaking style, uh, I think it's just fantastic, and I think it's really, really overlooked. Um, Die Hard with a Vengeance has so much well, energy, as you said, has so much exuberance. There's that all those wonderful zooms, and, and it's a real throwback to um, like a 1970s street cinematography that we saw with the French Connection and others. Um, so I wish the movie got a little more love because I think it's such a hoot. And um, you know, look at that Central Park taxi sequence. You know, oh, yeah. I've always said only John McTiernan can make an exciting car chase with only one car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that, you know, John McTiernan directed uh, this third film, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and he directed the first film, Die Hard, as well. Um, so it's worth mentioning. I, I recall at one point I saw the um, the Fox TV edit of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, Lord. And there was an infamous edit they did where there's a famous scene in uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance where Bruce Willis wears a sandwich board in the middle of Harlem. And yeah. um, in the movie, it has a very specific uh, racial epithet on it. Mm-hmm. But on the Fox TV edit, it says, I hate everybody. Yes. Which takes a bit of the uh, danger out of the scene, I think. Yeah, yeah I think most and- people would agree with him. Yeah, and, you know, um, a couple of interesting things about that scene, when they shot it, um, that racial epithet, uh, the whole message on that sandwich board was, was digital. The board was blank. 
Oh. Uh, at least I understand it. The board was blank and they CGI'd okay. uh-huh. in the lettering. Just as they CGI'd in the lettering um, uh, on the side of the building was in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh-huh. Um, so kind of interesting use of the CGI there. And, and on another note, there was an interesting... Um, there, was, uh, there was a version of the script that actually had changed it to uh, I Hate Everybody before changing it back. Mm. And, yeah, it, it totally takes the, uh, the danger out of it. You can see why they would, um, they would make those moves, um, but it's such a great sequence um, as, it, as it appears in the actual you know, theatrical uh, and home video version. Because it's clear that the movie is not you know, endorsing that kind of language. No, no, um, it's not. I mean, he's being forced to yeah. Yeah, and I wish that we that we were in a place where it was safe to trust audiences to to make that distinction. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll see that one and raise you and, and raise you one. Okay. Um, the scene where uh, McLean and Zeus are in I think Tompkins Square Park, and there's the uh, the briefcase bomb that they're trying to deactivate. Yeah. And Sam Jackson or Zeus says. You were going to call me, uh, you know, the N word, mm-hmm. and McLean says, "No, I wasn't." And they get in this argument, and McLean gets very heated. He says, um, "You know, I was going to call you. Uh, can I curse on your show?" Sure. Yeah. Say, um, uh, I was going to call you an asshole. You hate me because you know, you're a racist. You hate me because I'm white. And there's, there's that whole sequence. Yeah. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of interesting. There was a version in the script where it's of, of the script where it's very clear that McLean was about to use that word, <laughs> and. What happens is um, he says, "You know, I'll kick your ass back twice times, you, you, goddamn nit," and he stops himself. And in the movie, the the, the volume of that exchange gets louder and louder and louder. But in the script, once he says, "You know, you goddamn nit," and stops himself, the scene gets very quiet. It reads very quiet, mm. and Zeus says, "You know," and, and very quietly the exchange continues, and Zeus says. You know, go, you're, go, go ahead and say it. You were going to call me a... Uh, and McLean says, no, I wasn't. And what were you going to call me then? And McLean says, <laughs> I don't know. Asshole, maybe. <laughs> and it's really, really interesting. And, yeah. and you can, again, you can see why they would never shoot that. But, I mean, what a fascinating scene. Um, and it's really interesting. So, and I mean, talking about, you know, Samuel L. Jackson as Zeus, the first two Die Hard movies, Bruce McLean... Uh, didn't really have a sidekick exactly. You had mm-hmm. Officer Al Powell played by original Van Johnson, Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson, mm-hmm. right? But you know, it wasn't like he was palling around with Bruce Willis in all these scenes. They just right. were talking on walkie talkies in the different films. Uh, right. More in the interestingly, sorry, sorry, interestingly though, um, some critics do refer to the first Die Hard as a buddy movie, and McKinnon has called it a buddy movie where the huh. buddies just, 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 just happen not to meet until the end. Um, maybe a little bit of a, a sort of sleepless in, C- in Seattle before sleepless in Seattle, uh, <laughs> and was done. But um, uh, but your but your observation is correct. I mean, the third one is the one that introduces the buddy element. In fact, the script that um, that Die Hard: Revengeance was based on, called Simon Says, uh, which is a spec script by Jonathan Hensley, was at one point being looked at as um, a potential source for Lethal Weapon Four. You know, I had heard that. I was wondering if you could confer- confirm that. Thank you. I've heard it, too. Um, I honestly can't remember where I've read it um, or where I 
heard it, but uh, but I've heard it too. So you know, would I swear to it? You know, would I bet my life on it? No, but but I'm pretty sure that that's that's the case. Um, but yeah, it, it is the first in the series that, that's a bunny movie, and I think that that speaks to the series need to kind of mix up the elements a little bit. And it's you know it's it, it, it's a, it's that question: How do you deliver enough of what of what was the same to be comfortable and familiar and recognizable, and also deliver enough of what's different to be new and interesting and uh, compelling. Right, and I think certainly having the whole Simon Says sort of theme for the bad guy, where at least in the first half they give him a bunch of riddles and they're in a lot of outdoor locations, help make it different from the first movie, which was a very um, intimate, sort of claustrophobic building environment. And the second one in an airport kind of went outside a little bit, but but not, not so much. So you get the the stakes are much bigger in this one than in any of the previous yeah, and, movies, and, and as a result, I think a little more cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's reflected in in a lot of other um, subtler elements of the movie. The makeup, you know, when when McLean, the gore that that they start to slather onto McLean oh, yeah. when by the end <laughs> of the movie, the mute yeah. Michael Keaton score is is very cartoonish, particularly some of the unused cues. Um, that you hear in the scoring sessions. Um, so, so it is a more cartoonish movie, I think, for the reasons you're talking about. I always do, though, uh, take a little exception when people call the first hour claustrophobic. Uh, and I do know what you mean by it. It, it. I always say it's not claustrophobic, it's confined. Because one of the things, yeah. things that I think really makes Die Hard such an interesting piece of filmmaking is that it's really the outside of the building where you feel claustrophobic. Because the, the way the film is shot, the mm. focus is so shallow in when you're outside um, that there's much more pressure. Um, it feels like there's much more pressure on the actors uh, and, and on the viewer. Inside the building, the space is much more wide open. Um, and so you really get to feel a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more expansive. I mean, certainly there are moments of claustrophobia. I'm not going to say that there are. Well, that's a good point, but, because in the first film, inside the building, you have all the different floors, all the empty space. And mm-hmm. it's a lot more verticality in the space than outside. Yeah. You know, it's the police, the SWAT team going to get fucked as they're approaching the terrorist and yeah, getting blown and, and away. The, and production designer of, of the first movie and of the third movie, Jack Degovia, has said that what makes Die Hard, the, the building of Die Hard an interesting space, is essentially that it's a jungle. And mm-hmm. that whereas most mm-hmm. office buildings, you perceive of them, you think of them mainly in terms of the floor. Um, in Die Hard, you think of the walls and the ceilings, too. And the yeah. danger could come from anywhere. Yeah. yeah this so, is... you know, I think one of the things that makes that first movie so so successful um, creatively is that you really explore the space of the building uh, in a way that all almost all of the filmmakers who followed with the Die Hard on a something uh, <laughs> never, never really replicated. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, with the first Die Hard movie, um, you know, although obviously not based on a video game, certainly the structure of it taking place on different levels with different weapons reminds me of a video game now, looking back on it. Um, Yeah, the screenwriter, uh, Stephen D'Souza, said that um, people have told him that Die Hard is the first video game movie, that you progress from floor to floor, level to level, (laughs) picking up different equipment. um, Well, first non-Kung Fu video game movie. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Uh, but yeah, back to Die Hard with the Vengeance. I really love the casting mm-hmm. of Jeremy Irons as the bad guy mm-hmm. in this. It's oh, yeah. so clever in that you have uh, 
a, a slightly sort of campy British actor playing uh, a German again, you know, sort of like uh, Alan Rickman did in the first one. In fact, it turns out they're related. And I do have to say, comparing the two, I think Jeremy Irons pulls off a better American accent when he's faking being an American. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not really a... It's not the fake stage and radio American accent that the British actors and comedians often do. It's like... He's actually doing a very specific kind of asshole American accent. Sort of like, almost like a southern dialect a little bit, but Alan Rickman's voice is so peculiar (laughs) (laughs) that him trying to do an American just sounds even more awkward. Uh, Although I like the performances in all the films by those actors. I'm sorry, say that again? Oh, just saying, you know, I appreciate the performance of Alan Rickman in the first Die Hard and Jeremy Irons in uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. But it's just fun to see them both have scenes where they pretend to be, um, you know, not their native nationality. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you if you wanted to, you could give it to Jeremy Irons on points. But uh, uh, I think they're both great. But I, mean, I don't think you can beat the, the scene for scene, though. I don't think you could beat um, the scene in the first one where no. he uses he uses the American accent. I mean, that is the the acting, the the writing, the. Um, uh, the cinematography, I mean, all of that is just, a lot more tension. You know, you know people at the, at the at the top of their game and doing yeah. things that are so interesting. Even the way, um, the way the uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how the floor was when they shot that scene in the building. Um, they I, either the line, I think that they continued the lines that were in the floor up the walls, um, so you have this kind of hatch hatching effect. Hmm. Um, or sort of like, um, this cross-hatching effect. And so when the camera tilts to those canted angles, um, when we know that Alan Rickman is Hans, but presumably McQueen doesn't, and the whole scene is, is thrown into this, or the audience is thrown into this kind of psychological um, instability, um, the lines continuing up the floor, I'm sorry, up the walls, exaggerate the tilt of the of the camera, so you feel even more off kilter. I mean, it's just mm. you know that first movie is just such a uh, an incredible example, not just of writing and acting, but also photography and design and editing and, and sound. And, I mean, it's really it, it, that movie is like film school in two hours and thirteen minutes. Um, which not to take anything away from the third one, because you know it's just hard to get to catch that lightning twice. And I think, I think three is a, uh, a really worthy sequel. And, and like I said before, really underappreciated, uh, on the, for the merits of its filmmaking. Yeah. Have you uh, heard the, 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 the robbery sequence? I mean, mm-hmm. the way the camera just sort of dances, um, during the, the heist is just, and interacting with the music. It's just, it's just beautiful. And I really like the beginning of Die Hard with a Vengeance, where you're, uh, it mm. plays the, the piece of music and just sort of standard yeah. shots in New York, and then all of a sudden there's an explosion out of nowhere. It really... Yeah, my, my wife loved that, uh, that opening, too. Um, fun thing about that, uh, about that explosion, when, when, the, when Bond would tell our storefront blows out, and you see, a, I think, a van flip over, that van is Atlantic Courier. That's actually an inside joke. Um, because uh, in the first Die Hard, which, uh, which is set on the West Coast, the terrorists arrive in a truck. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah. Marked Pacific Courier. Yeah. Oh, okay. Huh. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, in Speed, when the plane blows up, it's a Pacific Courier plane. Oh, you're right. Um, huh. And 
Yeah, and what do Die Hard Speed and Die Hard of the Vengeance all have in common uh, is production designer Jack Degovia. So it was his little, his little inside joke. But um, well, I also love that opening sequence you know, leading up to the explosion, the music and the, uh, the New York shots. And here's what I think is so great about that sequence. There have been a lot of movies that have opened in New York and, and do the kind of iconic New York um, tableaus, right? Yeah. Um, Armageddon, you see, you know, Grand Central, and you see um, uh, the Empire State Building, the Chrysler, or, or something. Um, Working Girl, you know, you have, it's the Statue of Liberty, um, and then you go in, I think, to the Staten Island Ferry. What I love about the opening of Die Hard with a Vengeance is it's not New York landmarks. It's New York as New Yorkers live it and experience it. Um, and that makes it feel so authentic. And, it, and that's why I think Die Hard with a Vengeance is one of the most authentically New York New York movies um, that anyone's ever made. You know, John McTiernan really captured the, the look and the energy um, and even the, the, that summer muggy heat of New York City um, on film. And I think that's, you know, that's another thing that, that really shouldn't be overlooked. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, another thing about that, the two things that about, about that beginning, one, it follows the, the Robert McKee thing where you, you start with the inciting incident as soon as possible. You know, once, once we're comfortable with the movie, bam, we get that first explosion. But the other thing, it's the first movie in the series that doesn't begin with John McClane having an everyman moment. Uh, that's true, yeah. Um, but it's a while before you see McClane in this film. It is. Um, it definitely, that, that's an interesting point. It is. Um, and also it's, it's a long time in this movie. It isn't because it's a long time before you see McLean, but it's a very short amount of time before there's an explosion, um, <laughs> violent. Um, but it's also a very long time, uh, in, into the running time of the movie before John McLean uses his gun. It's about an hour into the movie before he fires his first shot. Um, and I don't, I've always found that to be interesting, but you're right. It's, it's the first one to open without in a kind of normal uh, common man moment. And I think that's consistent with the fact that it's also the first movie in the series to really treat McLean as a kind of generic character type. You know, he's a burned out. He's a, he's a, he's a burned out, divorced, borderline alcoholic cop, which is really kind of a movie staple. Um, and I think, I don't think that's necessarily to the movie's advantage because what the, the first one makes him so authentically, such an authentic person. And the second one does its best to do that, given the fact that he's already been the hero of a movie. Um, I heard of the Vengeance, I guess, just, just didn't want to waste a lot of time on that stuff. Yeah, um, it gets like rid of the... Die Hard with the Vengeance does get rid of the uh, the family baggage, and it's interesting to see they sort of return to uh, elements of his family in um, the fourth one. And from what I can tell, with the fifth one, they're working on. Yeah, is also going to well, well, that was actually one that. thing about the the sequel that did kind of up, upset me is is that I, I is that you know John McClane and his wife they kind of they come through a rough, rough patch in the first Die Hard, and the second Die Hard, you know, their marriage is still going strong. Right. It really upsets me that in the third film we found out that his marriage has fallen apart again. I, I just, I, I yeah. felt, I guess part of me felt that it kind of invalidated the achievements that they may have in the first few films. I think, I think they could have, I think they could have, rem- if they didn't want to have the baggage of the family as part of this movie, I think they could have 
avoided that without having to say that his marriage had fallen apart again. I agree. And, you know, I've, I've always had a, a tough time with the idea that he hasn't talked to his kids in a year or, or whatever. It's, it's mm. been a very long time. Yeah. And then he moved back to New York so quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I agree. I've, I've always thought, you know, again, that's sort of the movie lapsed or the series lapsing into what's kind of very comfortable and generic for the action movie. Um, and I wonder if, if there was a, a way that that could have been avoided. Because, um, right, it, it does invalidate their achievements. So, I think another way of looking at it, it, given that I'm a fan of the first and the third, and of the, and the third movie, and, and less so of the second, um, what's interesting to me is that the third movie has a lot of references to the first movie, and none to the second. So, I was kind of, I, I enjoy imagining it as, as John McTiernan's way of saying that Die Hard 2 never happened. But, uh, not that I believe that's literally true, but you know, it's fun to think about. <laughs> well, and you know, certainly in the second one, even though they give Bonnie Bedelia some business to do in the in the airplane she's on, it feels so extraneous and forced compared to how she was used in the first film. That yeah, yeah, she's much more integral to the action of the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that at least in the third one, you know, if they're not going to have her, I, th- I think that's better than if they just would have had her for like a two minute cameo at the end. Would have felt a bit of a cheat as well, so I don't know, maybe yeah, she'll come back for Die Hard whoever the actress, I've always thought that whoever the actresses they have on the phone, you know, on the pay phone when yeah. he finally calls her, sounds nothing like her, Mm-mm. and <laughs> you know, you can, always, you can imagine doing it, hey, what does it matter? But it matters. Um, yeah, it does. So, um, yeah, I think that's all, uh, you know, that's a part of the movie that they really treat with broad strokes. But, but then so is the rest of the movie. I mean, if you think about it, you know, I mean, I mean the first Die Hard is, is, is completely fantastical, except it's really grounded in reality. The, the third one, especially as you accelerate through the, into the second half and then through the second half, I mean, you're, you're really, your shoes are really beating the ground with, uh, with that story. So, that's what I was saying before, that it's sort of two movies sort of put together. Um, sort of Frankenstein together, um, right? And I, I think I prefer the first half more. It's uh, it's so interesting how with the I do Jer- too generally with the Jeremy Irons as the villain. How you we mentioned you know John McClane not drawing a gun for like half the film. You don't even see Jeremy Irons until a, a good bit yep. into the picture. You just hear his voice. It's this threatening thing. His threats keep on building, and he proves that he's threatening by um, you know setting off these explosives and having very. He, he's playing literally cat and mouse with uh, John McClane and uh, Zeus in the film, and it's well, such I a neat. That. Yeah, I no, like no, I think it's great, and it's such a neat build up when you finally see his face, and they finally revealed a bit of backstory that he's actually the brother of uh, Hans mm-hmm. Gruber, uh, played by Alan Rickman in the first film, and that's a real neat connection. Although I'm a bit annoyed, and this is a, a true nitpick, that they show slow motion footage of Alan Rickman falling out the building the way he died yeah. in the first film, and I think it's such a a cheesy special effect. Really? Yeah. Well, it's dated well, by the time this film gets made, and it's also so. probably and, the most embarrassing 24 frames of Alan Rickman ever filmed. Well, you know, it's, I can I can speak to that shot um, on a couple of fronts. One of the, I love the fact that that's how they revealed that, it was, that he's Hans' brother, because there was, in, in one of the drafts of the script, it's a photograph. Oh, they, yeah. They fo- they were, yeah. There's a photograph of, huh. of Simon, and then they reveal that in the photograph, he's got his arm around um, Hans. 
or that Hans has his arm around him. Um, I love the fact that they used the footage from the first movie, particularly because not only is it a famous shot and a mm-hmm. crowd-pleasing shot, but also, if you think about it, it's McLean's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it is a POV yeah. shot. So, so, and that moment of, of recognition in McLean's face, to cut from that to that shot and back again, really kind of creates that subjective experience. Um, I do disagree that it's a, a cheesy special effect. Um, uh, it's a, I think it's a great effect. I think it's one of the reasons that the movie was nominated for Best Special Effects. Um, and, uh, I guess my great... w- issue with it more is that it reminds me, there's a lot of scenes where the bad guy falls to their death. Mm-hmm. And, well, there are now. Well, there are now, and I think at the time, it, you know, had I seen Die Hard in a theater when I was five or whatever, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I could have appreciated it more. But I think in retrospect, with all the movies I've seen, that's just such a normal way they have bad guys go out. But I agree. I, I think the acting on Bruce Willis's face during that scene is really interesting, where you see the moment of shock, and it's a real subtle mm-hmm. sort of emotion for this character. Who, who was really kind of like a smart-ass screaming the whole, you know, kind of yelling stuff a lot of the time. And that he has a moment of shock. Right, and, and the way, way he's been a smart-ass in that scene, and then suddenly gets pretty serious. No, it's very And quiet. And yeah. the thing I love, my favorite line in the movie is in that scene. And hmm. it's not McLean, it's, it's, it's not Simon, it's a throwaway line. It's when, um, I can't remember if it's, um, I think it's after the shot of Hans, and it comes back to McLean, and Rick Walsh turns to somebody behind McLean and says, L.A., the thing in the building in L.A. I love that they call it the thing in the building. Yeah. Um, That's so real. But, you know, but I, I take your point about, you know, about villains falling to their deaths, and I think you're touching on, on a really interesting and important aspect of, of movie-going, particularly genre movie-going, which is that you know, very often the bad imitators ruin the experience of the great earlier examples of something. Mm. So it's like, you know, so it's like people who grew up on really bad slasher movies of the eighties. You know, when they finally see Psycho, it's harder for them to to get into it um, because they've seen yeah. a sort of blunter version of it, and they're and they're desensitized. Well, um, no, and I will say, at least at least Hans wasn't impaled. Um, <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. That, that, that's truly the cliche. Yeah, and that's yep. the one I've always hated. <laughs> um, and I love the fact that he, just, you know, he, he drops thirty floors and just plans with a thud. I think that's just great. <laughs> yeah, and, and you by know, the way, Alan Rickman wasn't prepared for that fall during that take. Oh no! Um, no, they had rehearsed. They had rehearsed his fall, and he was going to drop. I think thirty-five feet into an airbag. Mm. Or no, I'm sorry. I think it was twenty-five feet into an airbag. And they'd practiced, and they told him, you know, okay, the, the drill is going to be. Three, two, one, go. And on go, we're going to release you from the harness. Uh. Great. Get him up to 25 feet. And the stunt coordinator, Charlie Picherney, turned to the guy operating the rig and said, drop him on one. <laughs> so when they, when they do their countdown, Rickman is released a full beat before he's, before he's prepared for it. That was their first take. Wow. So after that, they, they did another take, maybe two other takes, where they dropped him on go, like they, they said they would. Guess which take is in the movie. The first one, <laughs> right? You can't fake that. You know, yeah, you, no, no actor can can fake that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've always loved that story. Well, there is something about such a great uh, history of, of stories with the makings of films where it's the first take that really does it. 
I think of a, a scene in The Exorcist where they're trying to get a character... I, I haven't seen The Exorcist in several years, but there's a scene at the end where they're trying to get um, a character to cry, and the director ran up and slapped the actor in the face and ran off screen and <laughs> continued with the scene. And that's the scene they used. Um, I'm sorry I don't know the specifics of that scene, but you know, it, it is really something about doing something with a lack of rehearsal or something slightly off. That yeah. causes, and I do think, even though I just said that scene was cheesy with uh, Alan Rickman falling to his death uh, from the first Die Hard film, it's certainly a better composited shot. Uh, I think of a shot in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, which we've done all those movies on SequelCast, if you want to check that out at SequelCast.com, where uh, one of the Nazis is, uh, what the tank goes over yeah. the cliff or something and the Nazi oh, yeah. screams, and it's an extremely poor um there, when the blimp is, is leaving effect. and the and the Nazi is pulling himself, um, yeah, you know, up in the back, yeah, yeah. There's yeah the a few of the those special effects in the third one are are really kind of a letdown. It's it's the one in the series that looks least like a movie, mm-hmm. um, which is why I love Temple of Doom. I think Temple of Doom, for all of its flaws, and I think there's a lot of great things in Last Crusade. Um, the performances are great, the story's great, but and, and Last Crusade, not unlike you know, it, actually, it's, it's a good comparison. Uh, Temple of Doom and Die Hard of the Vengeance are both movies that have uneven stories. Um, um, You could also say it feels different in the first half and the second. Like all the stuff with the different tests in the temple are so different from all, oh, we're going to go with the rats in the sewers and uh, go to the Nazi castle. Um, Yeah, they they are different in that respect. Um, But I think that Temple of Doom and Die Hard with a Vengeance, you know, both have kind of uneven stories. Mm. They can't quite figure out the tone that they want to take. They don't really land on it, but they both look and sound incredible. Um, the, the the quality of the filmmaking um, is really great. I think both movies are the um, are are the underappreciated gems yeah. in their in their respective franchises. Oh, I've always thought the uh, the score to Temple of Doom is probably my favorite out of all four Indiana Jones movies. That has some wonderful musical cues in there. Yeah, me too. It's, it's one of my favorite of Williams' entire Hoover. Uh, mm. I think he's just it, I think it's just an amazing score and gets there every time I listen to it. Um, so, I mean, you think of Die Hard with a Vengeance, and uh, when Samuel L. Jackson, you know, has this part as Zeus, Pulp Fiction had already come out by the time in the theater at this time. But he still wasn't a really well-known name. And um, I just think their chemistry, there's a lot of differences between the character of Zeus and John McClane, and they clash a lot. And that's what makes for a real fun, if you're going to go for a buddy cop thing in a film, that makes it better than, say, the stuff in uh, the fourth film, Live Free or Die Hard, between uh, John McClane and the Macintosh kid. I can't recall his name yeah. at the moment. <laughs> but, you know, between, like, John McClane and a nerd character, basically, it's not mm-hmm. as interesting. And like you said, the character actively in an opening scene says that he doesn't like white people, and yet, you know, he he still saves John McClane from a, a near-death experience in well, Holland. I, right. I think it's because he has a good moral sense. The interesting sense. thing is he says, it's the reason he says he does it. It's, um, it's not to save... Um, a white cop to save all the black people in Harlem. Remember, yeah. he says, you know, yeah. "Today, one black, one white cop gets killed today. Tomorrow, we got a thousand white cops all with itchy trigger fingers." Yep. Um, I think you know that. I mean, obviously, the, the the partnership in three and four are are doing very different things, and I think the mm-hmm. one in three is much more interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 
the racial tension that the movie is tapping into, you know, it's it's not the most original source of tension, but I think it handles it in a pretty interesting way. And I love the line when when McLean goes chasing him and says, uh, "You know, hold up, partner." He says, "I'm not your partner. I'm not your yeah. your brother, your neighbor, or your friend. I'm your total stranger." Um, and there's a lot of that stuff I really like. Um, I, I like the way that Samuel uh, L. Jackson, is, the costume you know that he has, um, you know, just a plain white shirt and, and pants. You know, it really under underplaying um, you know all of that animosity. And you know, it's it's there was a time when they were considering more like a, a more a militant costume for him, like like he was a, a former Black Panther or something. And the story I heard is that John McTiernan said, why can't he just have a white shirt and pants? And yeah. I think that, you know, it really sells it. Um, so that, that the racial tension, you know, it's always there, but it's not what the movie's about. Um, you know, we talked before about that scene that, that was shot differently than the way it was written. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally still would have loved to have seen it that way. I think that would have been fascinating. But, you know, again, you can see why they didn't do it. Yeah, and, and, the you know, the Justin Long and the fourth one, you know, it's there just like Shiloh is there in, in Indiana Jones to make, <laughs> you know, the, to make yeah. the franchise relevant yeah. to people who, you know, <laughs> didn't grow up on seeing it in theaters, at least. Um, and, you know, I've never been a Justin Long fan. I think he's okay in this. Um, I think that what I liked about it was that it gave... I like how McLean talked about heroism in the fourth one. I thought where the fourth one is good is where it has this sort of this sort of faint, dark heart. You know, I, I really like mm-hmm. when he says, you know, um, believe me, if there was someone else to do it, I'd let them do it, but there's not, so we're doing it. You know, really kind of getting back into that reluctant heroism thing and, you know, th- what it really means to be that guy. And I, I like those little speeches he gave to, um, to Justin Long, but... You know, I was perfectly happy when, when the kid wasn't on the screen, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you think about this second half of Die Hard with a Vengeance? <laughs> where, because I think the stuff with the, the games that, um, you know, Jeremy Irons as uh, Simon Peter Gerber plays with McLean are so interesting and so fun, and they're so strict. You know, there's I, I like the scene in the beginning where he mentions there's a bomb on the subway, but he wants them to meet up at the phone, and they sort of try to to cut him off and saying, like, well, uh, John McClane is going to run and deactivate the bomb, and Sam Jackson, or, sorry, Zeus, is going to, um, you know, answer the phone. And when they're in, when he picks up the phone, even though he gets there barely in time, you know, uh, Peter, Simon Gruber says, oh, no, it's just one of you in the phone. That's not what I meant. I'm still going to detonate the bomb. Like, I think that's such a fun series of scenarios in the early part of the film that I wish they would have kept that up through the climax of the movie. Yeah, it's, you know, it is kind of a shame um, that that the movie is so uneven that way. Um, I think the second half is, you know, I, I do think the second half is a hoot. Um, yeah. it's, it's totally crazy. It's what I like to think of um, when I think of, of the second half, and when I think of making the second half, is it's just sort of boys pushing around their big Tonka trucks, you know, <laughs> like and crash them that. into each other. The, yeah. the movie really has that. The second half, in particular, really has that feeling to it. Um, so I mind it less than other people do. But um, 
and I don't think it's necessarily bad you know, on its merits um, or on its own terms. I just think that it doesn't exactly fit with the first half. If, if the movie had been entirely the first half or entirely the second half, um, it would be very different. You know, yeah. That's how different those halves are. And it's interesting you say, what you say about the gamesmanship because what's on the DVD and the Blu-ray, as you probably know, is the, one of the original endings yep. where it, it is where McLean tracks, where Simon has gotten away and McLean tracks him down and plays you know, a game that McLean says, um, which I think is a more interesting ending, but not as, as propulsive, not as climactic as, you know, as, as what they ultimately reshot. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, have you seen that scene, Thrasher? No, uh, which scene? Uh, on the DVD and Blu-ray, there's a deleted scene of an alternate ending where it's like several years later, McLean confronts Simon and calls him on the phone and plays McLean Says. And then no. he shows up and he blows him away point blank with a gun. And uh, I think it's a really interesting... A rocket launcher. Uh, sorry, yeah, that's right. A rocket launcher <laughs> from across the table. He shoots a rocket launcher at him. And uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting scene and I, 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 like, I understand it's darker and all these things but the ending of Die Hard with a Vengeance just always strikes me as so muddled as far as what happens in the politics of the characters and all these things I don't think it's quite as satisfying and yet I mean they did have to do reshoots with this film with having more Sam Jackson in it because he tested the character tested so well on the test screenings mm. so there's that to consider as well. But uh, what do you think of the alternate ending, uh, Eric? Well, like I said, I think, it's, I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. I think it's a little anticlimactic. Mm, um, yeah. You know, one of the neat things about about the Die Hard is, is how contained they are, not only in space, but in time. Mm-hmm. So, sure. you know, to, I think it would, it would really let some of the air out of the tires to, you know, fade out, you know, and then it's a year later. I like that this you know, movie takes place and, you know, within let's say, 18 hours, as, mm-hmm. uh, as the rest of them do. Um, or at least, you know, the, at least the first two did. I don't really remember <laughs> the fourth. You know, the fourth. Yeah. But, um, so, I love, I love that they did it. I love that it's available to see. Um, would it have made the movie more successful uh, creatively? I don't know. Um, that, that's a tough call. Um, I, can, I can sort of see it both ways. Yeah, there is a disappointment in movies when they do end up having an ending where it's like one year later, or it always yeah. feels like a bit of a cheat to me. But um, I, I think it's, for me, it's a little bit more interesting than the ending to Die Hard with the Vengeance. Although, yeah, I mean, overall, I think certainly Jeremy Irons is a very fun villain in this picture. And um, the bad guy in the second film, uh, was it William Sadler, I believe? Yeah. Is... Is okay, but certainly a lot more conventional of, you know, like a very direct sort of fierce military bad guy. Right. And he, and that, and it's funny you say the word conventional because that character became the convention mm. of the yeah. 19, of 1990s action movies. The, you know, the, the former military man, law enforcer. You think of like Ed Harris protector. in The Rock. Yeah, Ed Harrison, The Rock, um, um, Tommy Lee Jones in Under Siege, Eric Bogosian in Under Siege 2, you know, in the, um, you know, uh, Dennis Hopper and Steve, I mean, all of these movies um, had the, even the the terrorists in in Air Force One were Russians, but but they hijacked the plane with the help of, 
um, of a secret service agent. Mm-hmm. You know, so that idea that the enemy is among us and, and one of us, you know, that um, picked up a lot of... I mean, certainly Die Hard 2 is not the first movie to ever do it, but it really became the convention after Die Hard 2. Um, so it's all, in a way, all those Die Hard... On the something, you know, Die Hard meets Die Hard 2. Um, so, yeah, and I think William Sadler is a little bit wasted in the movie, um, unfortunately, because um, he is such a good actor and, and this is a, such a fun writer. But, um, I'm sorry, I was going to say, uh, something else at the ending of, of the, oh, and but with the ending of Die Hard 3, there were also versions of the script that were sort of a, a middle ground hmm. where it's where the action continues and ends on that day, but it has more of that gamesmanship quality where it involves the briefcase. Remember in the movie they used the briefcase box yeah. to blow the dam yeah. um, to try to drown McLean. There are versions of the script where McLean gets the case and uses it, um, or, or Simon gets it and, and basically it's used to kill Simon um, as he's getting away in his plane. And um, I think another version of the script where um, McLean and um, and Simon actually have a, have a hand-to-hand fight and McLean is able to like handcuff the the briefcase to Simon's wrist. Um, there's something something like that. It's been a long time since I've read them, but um, so there were endings that had that took place in the same day that had a little bit more of the gamesmanship, not not as much as the uh, as the McLean says, but uh, you know from that takes place in Europe. But like I said, kind of a middle ground. So Thrasher, you haven't spoken in a while. You watching Die Hard uh, with a Vengeance for the for your first time recently for the uh, the sequel cast? What was the one thing you took away from it? I uh, were you impressed with it compared to the second one? Or I, I enjoyed okay. it a lot more than the second one. I felt that there was a, there was a bit more craft uh, evident in it. Uh, I cared about the characters and their situations a bit more. I also I also felt that the sense of humor in Die Hard Three was was much more sly than in Die Hard Two. Like I love mm. like like when they disarm like when they disarm the, the briefcase bomb that's hidden in the fountain in the park. You know I love that McLean's ready to go off and get to the next part of the adventure, and then Samuel L. Jackson wisely points out, "You can't leave a bomb here. A kid might find it." And so <laughs> they pack the bomb up and they take it with them. Later, when they run into some of Gruber's men who are disguised as uh, as police officers, they hand it over to them, and uh, and you know the, of course the terrorists think, oh great we get our bomb back, and then when when the German guys disguised as American police officers are about to leave, one of them is going to leave the bomb on the street corner, and one of them goes you you can't leave that behind a kid might find it. Yeah, it's it's a much more the, the sense of humor is more subtle. Uh, and more sly. Like I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, there are the one-liners like you have in the first one or the second one. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there is a, a I think it's either the trailer or the TV or one of the TV spots or maybe both where the button, you know, the after-title joke was um, you know, when McLean goes into the Federal Reserve and, and the guard you know, who's actually a terrorist says, "Are you all right?" And McLean, you know, because McLean's dirty and ripped up, and he says, "Yeah, laundry day." Yeah, you know, that's sort of like the one joke, like one or two jokes. That and you, know, um, you got your AAA card. Like they're just a couple of those kinds of one-liners. The, the, the humor is is um, much more on the, on a low burn, on a low flame uh, in the third one, which is kind of neat. I think that's that's one of the neat things about it. And, well, and there's I think also you're exactly right. 
Well, there's also no cracks about how many times can this happen to the same person? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's nice to, you look at Bruce Willis's hairline in this film, and it's a bit more like it was in the first film. It's a bit more natural with it receding. And in the second film, he has some sort of hair plugs or something. And, uh, you know, like after Die Hard with Vengeance, in a lot of films, Bruce Willis just has his head shaved, just kind of owns up to um, yeah, and I'll, his hairline. I'll tell you, when, when they released the first image of him in, die, in Live Free or Die Hard, yeah. so was, I don't know how many months before the movie came out. The fourth one, okay, but, yeah. Yeah, but when I saw that, and I saw his, you know, his bald dome, I said, they blew it. <laughs> so he's not going to work, based on that one image, and this is why. Shaving your head? That's not something John McClane would do. Something Bruce Willis would do. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so for all this talk about, you know, McClane's back, it's all it's going to... And, and Bruce Willis was saying, you know, I'm the only one who's been part of all four movies. I'm the keeper of the keys. No, because Bruce Willis... I'm sorry, because John McClane... This is the difference between these two guys. John McClane is proud, but he's not vain. Mm. And so... Yeah, you know, and so when I saw that image, I thought, "Well, he's not playing John McQueen; he's playing Bruce Willis." And it's not—I don't think it's a coincidence that the movie is. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to make more out of the hair thing than than there than there actually is. But when you look at this movie, Die Hard, it doesn't feel like a Die Hard movie. It feels like a kind of generic action movie that that yeah. maybe is enjoyable, maybe not. You know, it's up to you. Um, but it's like a generic action movie that stars Bruce Willis. You know, I, I can watch Die Hard three and say, "Yeah, I believe." that this is the guy the events of the first movie happened to. I think that this is, I believe that this is the guy who the events of the last two movies happened to. But when I watch the fourth one, I just can't picture that this is the guy who, you know, was jamming a screwdriver into an elevator door to keep, you know, like all of that stuff. I just don't see them as the same, excuse me, as the same person. Um, and I think, you know, also the thing about three, you know, not to, to harp on it, but the thing about three is the craftsmanship. Um, that the filmmaking technique, and, and like I was saying before, the, the feel of New York City. Um, and you know, and I've seen that. I've seen three, you know, quite a few times. And it wasn't until the last time I saw it that I said, "Aha! That's how John McTiernan captured was able to capture New York." The next time you see the movie, look at the extras, particularly in the scene where um, there's a. Uh, the, the game of Simon Says on the payphone. I think it's on at the 72nd Street um, uh, payphone. You know, it's the first riddle that um, that for the first little game that McLean and Zeus have to play together. Yeah. The way the extras flow around the camera and past uh. the camera and between the camera and and John McLean. Um, if you've ever been in New York City, you know that's where it's like people just flowing all around you um and that's one of the one of the many things that they do to capture that energy um you know the frame is always in motion with people just like your field of vision is when you're you know when you're in new york um so it's things like that that you know that are subtle that you that you might not see on a first viewing that you know, really make this a special and, and and like i keep saying underrated uh movie just you know, as an example of, of sheer filmmaking technique yeah, in a way, the cinematography in A Die Hard with a Vengeance reminds me a little bit of uh, some of the Dirty Harry movies, even though those take place in uh, San Francisco, in that you have a lot of exteriors in the city in broad daylight, and yet you get sort yep. of a grittiness, sort of a realness mm-hmm. of the city 
where it's not a bunch of um, you know like supermodels walking around and overly lit shots. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it's like with um, you know those first shots, you know, in the main title sequence. Yeah, you know, it's New York as New York is lived. Um, you know, it's when you say Dirty Harry. I always think of the French Connection, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know another you know classic cop movie of, yeah. of, of not not only of the seventies but of nineteen seventy one. Yeah, I'm ashamed. Uh, I, I to talk a lot of, about French Connection and Dirty Harry in my, in my book, though I don't consider French Connection an action movie per se. But you know, that, that's a maybe a conversation for for another time. Where you know, <laughs> read the book, but um, but I think it's, you know, where, and where I think that really comes out is um, the is in the um, the taxi sequence. You know, all those zooms. Like one of my favorite shots in the movie is when the car, the ambulance comes around and, and you know, we zoom in and then the, the um, the taxi comes and we zoom in. You know, all those snap zooms in the uh, uh, on the street with the with the cars. You know, I mean that's that you know, it's classic nineteen seventies kind you know kind of stuff. Um, I think that's a lot of where that grit comes from. Plus, you know, the sweat and the dirt. Um, yeah, and the explosions. Um, it's funny to, to talk about you know something as, as sort of blunt and basic explosions from a design standpoint. But one of the things that that Jack Dovia has said is that. When he agreed to do the third movie, he asked as a personal favor uh, of John McTiernan, if we have to do explosions, let's do them the way they would actually look. Which mm-hmm. is why, in the third one, you don't have big fireballs, you mm-hmm. have dust clouds. Yes, right. Because that's what an explosion in the city would look like. Huh. Um, I think that adds to that, to that grit. And so, so as, as crazy as the movie is, and as cartoonish it is, you can say there is a way in which it's a little bit, at least a little bit grounded. Um, in something a little grittier and, and a little more, you know, reality based. Yeah, it's not quite a Michael Bay level of insanity, right? <laughs> it's not a <laughs> level of insanity. <laughs> but uh, well, good. Um, hmm. You know, I think we've touched on a lot of great things about Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, Thrasher, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I have a closing question. Yes. When I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. The seven wives <laughs> had seven sacks. And each sack was seven cats. Now I ask you, how many were going to St. Ives? Was it one? Is that the answer? Yeah, because it's a trick question. Because okay. only one guy, the guy who's saying the riddle, is going to St. Ives. Uh, the rest of the people he but just think, met along the way. But I think in, in one version of the script, they actually you know do the map all the way to the end, and that's the phone number. Um like there, there are a couple of ways of uh, of solving that riddle, but I loved I love those puzzles. I really love those puzzles. Yeah. I mean, like I, I love old school adventure games. It used to be full of things like that. And all I could think of every time <laughs> McLean and Zeus yeah. were working on a puzzle is I just imagined them in the style of Professor Layton, and it's Layton and Luke trying to stop a mad bomber. Yeah, or something like a King's Quest game. Yeah, I mean it's some it's so. Um... And you see the flustered nature in that scene between the two characters where Zeus is like, I know this, I know this, and then John right. McClane's forgotten half of the question. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the movie, I think, uh, there are moments where it really captures uh, very effectively that urgency, you know, or a feeling of urgency. Um, well, all the puzzles and, see, and facts, it's really educational. Look, we, we learned about Chester <laughs> A. Arthur. <laughs> I think my closing thought about the movie would be, you know, it's just why I've been, you know, I keep harping on it. It really is underrated. And, um, 
you know, I, I hope people listening to this, you know, it, it's a movie that's, that's, that people harsh on a lot. So I hope that people listening to, to this cast will, you know, really will give it a chance and a serious look, um, especially, um, you know, well, yeah, I mean, especially, you know, we're, we're long past the VHS days. Um, yeah. But I remember seeing a pan and scan that it's just awful, you know. I mean, <laughs> it is a, it, this is an amazingly photographed, really well designed, really well edited, um, piece of work and, and just on that level alone um, yeah I, I just hope I really hope it's a movie that I really hope um, its reputation grows you know over time because um, there's just so much to recommend it to beneath the surface I agree you know I haven't seen this film in a while and I was watching it again for the sequel cast and it just struck me wow this is a movie that at least in the first half especially it just really goes along on a good clip it's exciting it uses um I like the the taxi sequence through Central Park. It's just very funny, especially if you've ever been to uh, Central Park. Yeah. You know, it's not something you could ever really imagine happening, but it's such a different way to look at a location that you've seen in countless movies. That yeah. it has, has a lot of life to it for the third entry in a franchise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'd also give it a very strong uh, recommend. I'd even say you should skip Die Hard 2 and just move straight on to Die Hard with a Vengeance. You really could. <laughs> yeah. John McTiernan and Jack Vigovia did. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because they only mentioned the tower thing. They never mentioned the airport thing. Right. Mm-hmm. There are yeah. no references to the second one that I can remember. I think there might be uh, Michael Keenan's score, Mike Quotes in Landia once or twice in, in three, but, um, and they, and they definitely repurposed some of the score from two, yeah. um, in three, but as far as, you know, within the world of the movie, it's all about one. I would have liked to see Captain Al Powell in Die Hard with a Vengeance retire and be sort of <laughs> a, uh, run a food cart that just sells Twinkies, but that's perhaps a bit too silly. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit odd. I, I think he's going to retire with a nice pension. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Eric, thank you for uh, returning right. to the sequel cast as a guest uh, to talk about Die Hard with a Vengeance. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, not a problem. Anytime. Great pleasure having uh, Eric Lichtenfeld, the author of Action Speaks Louder, Violent Spectacle in the American Movie, a book now available in a revised and expanded paperback edition from such places as Amazon.com uh, on the sequel cast as a guest. If you if you liked hearing them on this episode, you might want to go back in our uh, sequel cast archives at sequelcast.com and go on the side where it says Movies Reviewed, click on Rambo, and in the the episode we did for Rambo 4, which is simply just called Rambo, it's uh, episode number 34 if you're keeping track, He's on that one as well, and he has a lot of uh, always has great opinions on movies in general, especially action really movies. Great, yes. Yeah, no, excellent. Um, is there anything you wanted? To, I know you didn't have much of a chance to speak, Thrasher, but is there anything <laughs> else you want, you want to toss in about Die Hard with a Vengeance? Um, no, I think I think the, the salient points. Uh, I I I love how much of New York this movie. Oh, I love that the villains in this movie have clear motivation. They're motivated by money. They want all that Federal Reserve money. And, of course, Gruber wants a bit of revenge in there on the side, which is why he's picking on McLean and using McLean as a distraction. His plan is ridiculously complicated, but he has like a hundred or so people to help him pull it off. So I I actually kind of believe it. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a neat. It could have been a very cheesy reveal, but they, they save it until later in the movie. I think you even find that out before you see what he looks like, aside from that photograph. 
Oh yeah, what I also like, even though it's it's like I like that I like that um that that uh, that McLean and Zeus do by the end of the movie through their adversity do become uh, friend not not just allies in adversity but friends. Uh, but I like it the way because of course the movie you think that Gruber and his got, goons have gotten away with it. You think they've pulled off their scheme, but McLean figures it, figures them out just using old fashioned detective work. He finds an aspirin aspirin bottle uh, that was bought from that was you know bought from behind the counter at a hotel and uses that to track the whole the whole group down. I, I love that moment. Just yeah. the power of observation is, is their downfall. Yep. He's still a cop. He's more <laughs> of a cop in this movie than he was in the second movie. Well, speaking of the cop stuff, it's interesting you mentioned that. I was doing some research, and uh, a listener to the, the sequel cast, uh, Maladdin, who has a, a podcast himself about comic books called Extra Sequential, Oh, yeah? He's out of Australia. And he was mentioning to me, there, and I, I have not read this yet, but there is a, a trade paperback called Die Hard Year One about oh. uh, the John McClane character, of course, played by Bruce Willis in the films, about him being a cop, you know, as a, a in New York City. Oh, and uh, cool. he said it was actually pretty good. Um, you know, I haven't read this, but I'm, I haven't been looking for it in any comic book stores recently. But it sounds like that could be fun if you like the Die Hard series. Oh, and, um, you know what? I do have a little bit of sequely news. Um, related to Die Hard? Well, no, but it's related to another film that Sequel Cast has covered. Sure, go ahead. What is it? Well, back when the Sequel Cast began, you remember uh, Uncle Milkshake and Jersey Jason reviewed uh, reviewed the Beverly Hills Cop films. Well, this yes. is coming in through the AV, the Onion AV Club, but uh, apparently Eddie Murphy is has a television series in development the television series would be about Axel Foley's son working as a police officer or police detective in Beverly Hills. And Axel Foley himself is now the head of the police department. He's the chief. It sounds like a terrible idea, and I bet it will be. But, oh, man, if it ever gets to the pilot stage, I bet it's going to be one of the most hilarious failed pilots we will have seen in a long time. You know, there's so many things that they announce, you know, that doesn't actually come into an actual final product or gets picked up past the pilot stage. Um, I mean, speaking about TV shows, this was going a little bit off uh, Die Hard 3 topic, but we have a few minutes, I guess. Um, you know, Fox recently, or it's either Fox or FX, but they're all owned by the same company, agreed for a deal, at least for a pilot of a Punisher TV show uh, based off the comic book character. Oh, you're right. And, um, you know, that's even even though they say oh, they were going to a pilot, that doesn't mean that thing will ever air, that it will ever go to series, of course. But I think... Where Punisher, um, you know, perhaps hasn't been as financially successful as some other comic book franchises. Maybe TV is a better home for Punisher. I don't know. But um, it's interesting about a a show potentially about Axel Foley's son. Um, And, you know, Eddie Murphy has had a a Beverly Hills Cop 4 in the works with Brett Ratner attached to direct for a few years on and off. But that hasn't really taken off either. Although Eddie Murphy is going to be in Brett Ratner's upcoming uh, film uh, released in the holidays in 2011 called Tower Heist. Oh, that's right. With Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller and uh, Matthew Broderick. And Alan Alda, I believe, as well. Uh, well, and they could do a sequel called Tower Heist 2 Sub-Basement. Uh, you could at that. Um, or Sub-Basement Burglary or something like that. Anything else Die Hard 3 you want to talk about? Um, no, I think we hit all the points. Overall, I enjoyed this movie. I, I would recommend it. 
I, I do side with you two, though, about thinking maybe you ought to just skip straight to Die Hard 3. But overall, <laughs> uh, I, it was a very enjoyable movie. Yeah, you know, like like I said earlier in the show, I wish they would have kept up the game, the gamesmanship between oh, yes. um, you know the Jeremy Irons and the other uh, actors in the movie. I thought that was the most fun part of the film. But well, I hope I mean, that Irons' henchmen like think that his his riddle his bullshit revenge riddle games are bullshit. I like that they call it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a bit, but it, it, it's a neat, fresh take on a villain that you don't really see a villain face to face until halfway through the film. Uh, Die Hard with the Vengeance is a lot of fun. It's extremely strong, especially for the third entry in a film. And I thought uh, the guest we had on, Eric Lichtenfeld, author of Action Speaks Louder, had a really interesting point comparing it to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mm. It was a very interesting take on it. Um, so yeah, I'd say certainly uh, watch it if you like the series. And as of October 2011, you can watch... Is it just the first three Die Hard movies on Netflix? Watch instantly. At in least the first three in the United I, I States. Will, yeah, I will admit it's taken me. It took me until yesterday to realize the fourth film was called Live Free or Die Hard. So I haven't actually searched for it. It might be there. You know, I I don't think it is. I didn't see it on there, but um, I mean that whole thing with the title of the fourth one we'll get into next episode when we wrap up our look at the Die Hard uh, as of this point quadrilogy called. Uh, live free or die hard or in international markets uh, i.e. outside the U.S. it was called Die Hard 4.0 so until next check out the website SequelCast.com if you go to Facebook and look up SequelCast we're on there too I'm still in the process of getting us back on iTunes it's a real pain in the ass let me tell you but uh, I hope we're back on iTunes sooner rather than later to get more listeners But uh, until next time, for the sequel cast, this is Matt. And Thrasher. uh, Saying... It's a binary liquid! Sure, that works. (laughs) (laughs) Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty and gritty. Been down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk, harder than a match but now it's a different world Go out and find a girl Come on, come on, that's all now Just like the heat, it'll be all right